as a kid, I remember when a, a church was birthed out of my parents' living room. Um, th this has been a fun thing for Sarah and I to step into because um, I, I know some, some church kids have really negative church experiences, but, um, but mine, was, mine was really wonderful. Um, this is, uh, this is the, the kid. We got to the point where we had so many kids, we had a kid's Christmas play, and uh, apparently um, if you like, were a shepherd back in the day, you just had like a towel on your head and like a little band, and then uh, there you are, there you're, you're a shepherd. And, um, but yeah, that's our first Christmas play there. I was the angel Gabriel. I totally freaked out when I walked out into the living room, and there's all these cameras pointed at me, and I forgot my lines and almost didn't tell people where Jesus was born. So um, the, yeah, the Christmas story was hanging in the balance. And then I remembered my lines, thankfully, and I was able to let them know where to go. But I, I, it was a really wonderful experience for me, starting from a living room and then and growing. And I saw the adults in my life um, trusting God in some really big ways and, and figuring out how to be a community centered around Jesus. And I, just, I have so many cool memories I could tell you about. But eventually, our, our living room didn't have enough room for everybody who wanted to be a part of what God was doing. And uh, so there's us with our homemade church signs, uh, Cornerstone Fellowship, and there's me and my two brothers, Tyler and Kevin. And uh, yeah, we, we didn't have enough room for what God was doing um, in that living room. And so the church moved into a building and God kept doing some really great things um, since then. And then years later, there was a group for college students that formed out of the church. And I was a part of that group and it was led by a pastor named Todd. And uh, I really looked up to Todd. This is Todd here. And I just thought he was really cool. And I even invited him to my Austin Powers themed birthday party. Yeah, baby. And because uh, I, I knew, I knew if Todd was there, it would just kick the party up to a whole other, a whole other level. It would, it would really increase my cool factor. And, uh, and it did. It really did. And then, um, and then Todd eventually launched out from the college group that he had started to get a new uh, church started in Oakland called Regeneration. Some of you um, know of Regeneration, um, which has had a great presence here in Oakland for, for a really long time. And um, I really looked up to Todd, and I, I was excited about anything that he was doing. So on Sunday nights, I would head out to Regeneration to be a part of their evening worship services. And, and what I experienced had this really profound effect on me when I was there as this high school student. Um, I looked around and I just saw all these people who were just kind of oddballs, um, where I just, I, just like, I just could tell, like, I don't know that they would feel comfortable maybe in other church settings. They might not feel included, um, but for, for whatever reason, their background or how they were dressed or just different things like that, I just like, man, here's a whole group of oddballs, but look, they've They've got, a, they've got a home. They've got a family here. And um, that's when Oakland really got under my skin um, as a high schooler. That's where things really got planted for me, um, where I had this sense of like, I, I want to create a place for other people who might not feel like they belong in most places. Like, that's where it really started for me. Um, meanwhile, um, Sarah was growing up in Oakland, and her family life was really broken. There's Sarah there. So cute. Um, and, but but her, her family life was really broken. And um, her family tried to find a church home. Um, they tried again and again, but there had been divorces and other tragedies and things like that in, in their family life, so much so that because of that, the churches that they would visit put off a really judgmental vibe towards her family once they knew a little bit more of what they were bringing with them. And um, other churches, Sarah would tell you, were just strange, were just weird. They're just like, as soon as they could, if there was any moment, they're just like, we gotta get out of here. I don't, I don't know what's happening. Um, so either judgmental or just strange. 
And um, so then years later, Sarah and I met, and um, when things started to get more serious, I wanted her to know kind of where I felt like God was leading me to go in, in my life. And I told her I wanted to be a pastor someday of a church community in Oakland. And her, her answer surprised me because um, she said, uh, you know, she said it would, it would be really redemptive for my story to be able to create for other people what I didn't have growing up in Oakland. Like that would be, that would just be such a cool way to just bring everything full circle. It's just uh, to go, okay, I, I, I get to create for other people what I didn't have. Um, all, all of us are creating circles for people in our life. Um, some of those circles, depending on our personality or, you know, friend groups and things like that, some of those circles are, are bigger or smaller. And um, some of us create a circle uh, for other people because at some point in our story, somebody else drew us into their circle. And what was happening in that circle was so good. We just, we felt like, man, other people need to experience this. Others of us um, create circles be, for other people because we ourselves, we weren't invited. We weren't included in somebody else's circle, but we always wanted a circle that was worth sharing with other people. So some of us, some of us create a circle out of a place of abundance. Others of us create a circle out of a place of, of lack and, and desire. Um, and so reunion's a circle. Um, some, of us, some of us include people into this circle um, because we have had great experiences in this circle or other church circles, and we just know, yeah, you should, you know, my, my friend, my coworker, my neighbor, you should be a part of this thing. I know it'll be great for you. Others of us are including people in this circle because we're hoping to create with other people here something that we've never had, but we've always wanted. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus drawing just in a really amazing circle with the people that he, he included in his life, with uh, this group of followers called his disciples. And, and what was happening in that circle was so good that it needed to be shared. And so Jesus was getting to the point in his ministry that he was just about ready to open up that circle to the entire world. And so on the, on the night before he was going to be betrayed and arrested and tried and crucified, Jesus got his circle together in a room, and they shared a meal together. And at that meal, Jesus says this. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, this, this really was a new command from, from Jesus. Um, before, before he gave this new command, maybe you know, Jesus, he was asked at one point what the greatest command was. In all the scriptures, somebody was putting him to the test and said, what's the greatest one? And Jesus gave a surprising answer. Um, he said, uh, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. But then he says, he goes on, he says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second, not what the person was asking for, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is great. Um, Jesus has been asked what the greatest command was, but he surprised everybody, giving them two. And, and what Jesus does here is really stunning because when he says the second is like it, he's not saying that love your neighbor as yourself is second in importance. Scholars want us to know with, that with this phrase, is like it, it's meant to be like this gigantic equal sign between love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is shocking. This is surprising. Um, Jesus is, is telling them, I'm, I'm not saying command number one is first in importance and then command number two, second importance. Jesus is saying the second command that I'm telling you about is equal in importance to the first one. 
Jesus is saying, you asked the wrong question. You, you, you thought there was one great command, but I'm here to tell you there's two greatest commands. I'm here to tell you that I want you to give equal weight to your relationships with God and with other people because from God's perspective, both are equally important to God's heart. And, and the people of Jesus' day really need to hear, needed to hear this, and, and so do we, because um, a lot of times in church circles, we tend to relate to God as if the God and me relationship is the most important thing to God's heart. And so during the week, it doesn't matter if I'm not doing good with others, because on Sunday, that's when I sing all the songs about how me and God were good. And then that's, that's all that really matters. I can kind of leave all the other stuff at the door. All that other stuff can be unresolved. But this is why Jesus would say something um, that was really uh, impractical and strange uh, to people of his day. He, he said, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Um, now, you and I, we don't, we don't live in the days of temple and altar, so we don't, we don't know how impractical Jesus is being right here. Um, if we lived back then as Jews, then we were lucky to make just a few long trips to Jerusalem at certain festival uh, high points in the year. This was a big deal to be able to offer sacrifices and celebrate at the festivals. And Jerusalem was packed with people just like us. And, and like any trip that you'd make, it took a lot of planning and coordination and money to finally get to the point where then you're in line to offer your animal sacrifice as a way to draw near to God. But then Jesus says, if you have that moment where you're third in line and you realize, oh no, me and my neighbor Frank, we're not doing so good. Well, I, I didn't leave things great back home. Uh, I, I, we had that whole argument when I backed my car into his metal sculpture of a Tyrannosaurus Rex in his front yard. And, and I know he made that thing with his own hands, and that's like his treasured prized possession. He's super proud of it, but that, that thing is an eyesore. Like, I've brought it up with the, the whole neighborhood association. Everybody agrees with me. Frank's metal Tyrannosaurus Rex, it's, it's an eyesore. I really feel like I did the neighborhood a favor backing into that thing. But really, really, if, if you think about it, Frank is the one who needs to apologize to me and pay me back because there's a giant dent in my car from the giant metal Tyrannosaurus Rex. He should pay for that. But if you're not doing good, Jesus says, God doesn't want your offering. He doesn't want it until you patch things up with Frank. Leave your offering, Jesus says. Make the long trip back home and make things right. But God, don't, don't, you, want, don't you want my offering? Don't, don't, don't you care about this thing that's so spiritual and holy and sacred and important? And God does care, Jesus says, but he cares about something else a whole lot more. He, if God's kids aren't getting along, the sacrifice can wait. The, the holy, sacred, spiritual thing can wait. Go work it out with Frank. Why? Because there's two greatest commands, equal in weight. Vertical, love God with all that you are, and horizontal, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The law and the prophets is a Jewish way to say the entire Hebrew Bible. Um, have you ever tried to read, read through the whole Bible? Anybody, like, at, like January, it's like a New Year's resolution. You're like, this is the year. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read through the whole Bible. We got this. And you get your Bible reading plan, or there's even like one year, read through the Bible, like actual Bibles that like plot it all out for you. 
Did you, get, did you even get to the New Testament? Or did you get stuck somewhere along the way? My guess is you probably got stuck maybe like in Leviticus with uh, like, yeah, which reads like this like B-movie slasher film with like all these like blood and guts and no plot and you have no idea what's going on. Um, all the strange and boring details make you want to Leviticus. It's just like, it's just so bad. Don't laugh at that. That's, don't laugh at that. If you laugh at that, I'll make more jokes like that. That's terrible. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, have you ever wondered, like, just, just trying to just get through the scriptures, uh, have you ever wondered how somebody could possibly remember and keep everything just in the Hebrew scriptures alone? Like, man, how do you even do that? Jesus says, guys, I'll make it easy for you. Do these two things, and you'll end up keeping the whole thing. And it's just like, thank you, Jesus. That is really so much easier to remember two things. But now, in an upper room with his, his circle, Jesus says, I have a new command for you. Now, I'm going to pause here to warn you. Maybe you're already glad for two commands, but you feel that Jesus has already stretched you enough. He's already messed with your day with this whole, my relationship with you is just as important as your relationship with other people. Maybe that was enough for you for the week or the month. So just tune me out if that's you, because Jesus is just about to mess with you even more. Um, when Jesus says this is a new command, we're not supposed to pull out our short list of the two commands and go, great, a new one. Commandment number one, greatest commandment number one, love God with all that you are. Greatest commandment number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Jesus, I'm ready for the new command, but I'm not sure now. Is this going to make this like three out of three greatest commands, or is this like number three? Is this on its own list? Like, what, how am I supposed to understand this? Okay, this is stunning. You ready for this? Jesus, when he says a new command, scholars want us to know that with this word new, Jesus means that he's about to give us something that absorbs the other two. Not three of three, not number three, not one more to add to the greatest two to make three. There's just one thing, Jesus says, because this one thing is going to absorb and complete and fulfill the other two. Wait, 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 Jesus, Jesus, you're already messing with me when it, you told me that you care about my relationship with others just as much as my relationship with, with you. But now there's just one thing? Like, I like the simplicity. I, I really do, Jesus, but I'm just a little suspicious about how this is all supposed to work out. Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And when Jesus says this, this word new, the word is kainos. Try saying that. Okay, some words that would describe kainos. Unprecedented, novel, uncommon, unheard of, given now for the first time of a new kind. So new doesn't mean another. New means of a completely different kind, not put this on a list with everything else that's like it. It's of its own kind. It's in its own category. And why does Jesus know that we need this new kind of new? Jesus is about to unleash something in the world that the world has never seen. His death and his resurrection are going to bring out this whole new kind of life for me and for you. And a whole new kind of life requires a whole new way to live. And how are we supposed to live, Jesus? Jesus says, Love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. 
Now, if you know the Jesus story, you know what happens after the whole upper room thing. And so you go, that's where our minds go when we hear, as I have loved you. We, we think, oh, Jesus is talking about the cross. That's the greatest act of love. But when the disciples are hearing Jesus say this, the cross hasn't happened yet. So when we hear, as I have loved you, we, we cast forward to this moment on Calvary, but they would have remembered back to times when Jesus loved them. Jesus would say, hey, Matthew, you remember, remember when you were a tax collector? Remember when you were a total government sellout and you took a position in the Roman government that allowed you to sit pretty and safe and even benefit from this broken tax system and you could exploit people and take advantage of this whole thing and, and you were sitting pretty while other people were suffering? Remember how everybody just hated you, Matthew? Remember all the people who had put out a hit on your life because of things that you had done or said to their family to just push them further and further into poverty? Remember how they, taught, they called you a traitor and a sellout to your own people? Matthew, remember, do you remember how I loved you in that moment? Do you, do you remember how I sought you out and I called you to follow me and to be a part of this new thing that I was doing? Matthew, I, I included you in my circle. Matthew, I've, I've got a new command for you. I want you to love others like I loved you. I want you to look for all the sellouts and the traitors and the people who have been rejected, and I want you to widen your circle to include those people just like I included you, just like I loved you. Hey, hey, Nathaniel, remember when I found you and you heard, before you'd even met me, you heard that I was from Nazareth, and you're like, Nazareth? But nowadays, that's like being from like, I don't know, like Fresno or Stockton or Bakersfield or something. People be like, what? Jesus is from where? I'm sorry if that is your hometown, uh, but I'm just trying to give you a sense for what that was like. But, but Jesus, Jesus, Jesus would say, Nathaniel, you, before you'd even met me, you, you dissed me. You dissed my hometown. You dissed my people. You wrote me off based on where I was from. And Nathaniel, after all that, I still included you in my circle. And now, Nathaniel, it's your turn to love people the way that I loved you. Don't exclude the people, Nathaniel, who have wounded you and slighted you and written you off. Make space for them because that's how I loved you, Nathaniel. That's what I did for you. Hey, Mary Magdalene, remember, remember when you were possessed by seven demons? Like one demon is plenty, but you were completely overrun by spiritual darkness. Remember how everybody just thought you were nuts? Remember how people didn't know what to, to do with you? People just thought you were just totally out of control and this, this lost cause. Remember that was your, your reputation in the community? They thought you were a goner, Mary. Mary, remember how I, I found you and, and I rescued you from your torment? I set you free, Mary. That's how I loved you. And now, Mary, it's your turn. I want you to, Mary, to widen your circle to include other people that have been labeled too far gone because you know what they need. You know what they need to experience and feel and hear, because that was your story. You have everything you need to love those people because you received that love from me. You know how to take care of these people. You know how to widen your circle to include other people that have been labeled too far gone, lost cause. So love people like I loved you, Mary. So what about you? Think, let's think on our own lives. 
how, how has Jesus loved me? How has he extended friendship to me? How has he redeemed me? How has he made space in his circle? How has Jesus loved me? When, when he found you, what, what was your story? Where were you at? What, what was your baggage that you were bringing into that relationship? What were, what were your hang-ups? Had you burnt a lot of bridges? Had you, had you left a lot of pain in your wake? Did you, did you think or say some regrettable things about Jesus or people who believed in him and followed him? Had, had other people labeled you as a lost cause or too far gone? How, how did Jesus love you when he found you? I think, um, I think this is a cool moment for a couple stories to be shared. Um, we like to do this from time to time where we get together with two or three other people. And if, 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 if it's not where you're at, if you're not comfortable with that yet, that's okay. Somebody else would be. But um, I think when we think about how Jesus has loved us, there's some cool stories in the room. So um, I want to give you just a couple minutes to group up with like two or three people around you. And, and at least one person in the group could say, yeah, this is, this is how Jesus loved me. Okay, so let's circle up and then I'll, I'll call you back after a little bit. Ready? Go for it. All right. I hate to cut you guys off in the middle of a good story. So here's what I'll say. Community groups. New group for new people forming. Because uh, that's got to be a big part of, of how we get started is getting to know each other's stories. Um, I know there's some really good stories here in, in the group. I, um, yeah, and I'm sure I, I cut somebody off right at like the best part of the story. And they're like, wait, come on. Okay, well, get together in a community group and say, hey, do part two because... That one guy interrupted you in the middle of your great story, and uh, we forgive him, but I need to know what happened. So um, for, the, for the past few weeks, we've been asking what our new church can learn from the first church. And when the first churches got together, they, they broke bread, and they got together to remember how much Jesus had loved them. Um, on a regular basis, they were remembering Jesus' command, love others as I have loved you. And everything they did came out of that relationship. And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And when the first churches broke bread, it wasn't like how we do it nowadays where we celebrate communion with like a shot glass of grape juice and a, and a stale cracker. There was, like, there was like a whole meal involved. Um, and so that's why um, it was really fun to do that this way uh, this morning, like we did, the way that we gathered to get a taste for what that could have been like. Um, the scripture describes it this way. It says they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Doesn't that sound really great? Sounds great to me. Has it ever bugged you, if you've, if you've been in, in church circles even for you know, weeks, months, years, has it ever bugged you that, that the only way that, that most of the time we take communion is in a big room and with a bunch of people facing forward and, and you never faced another human being who wasn't like an officially licensed minister in that whole thing. T today's meal was meant to give us a sense for how the first Christians celebrated communion. It was, it was centered around a table. And there was laughter and stories and kids and multi-generational and socioeconomic kind of stuff all, happening all over the place. 
And, and yeah, it took some coordination this morning for us to bring some, some food to the gathering today, but like, was it worth it? That was, that was a great time with you guys. I really enjoyed that. And uh, it's, it set a really cool tone for our time together. The, the first church was gathered and centered around a table. Somewhere along the way, we lost that, and we centered ourselves around a pulpit. Now, don't get me wrong. We need sound teaching from the scriptures. I, I, I care about this, this part of church life very much, uh, if that isn't obvious. Um, it's, it's one of the core things that the church was founded upon was the apostles' teaching. But there were four things that the church was devoted to, and I rarely experienced the one called breaking bread. I don't know about you if that's your experience too. Somewhere along the way, did we drop the breaking bread thing because it didn't feel as like spiritual as the other ones? Like, I don't really know why we dropped that one. But when we dropped breaking bread, I think that we left behind one of the most powerful ways to change the world. And, and, and I would like to recapture that with you guys. You, you should know that these first Christians, they were a really unimpressive, pretty humble group of people, which is comforting when you're in Oakland and you feel like a minority um, in, in your beliefs and what is, is it true and important to you to say, hey, this is how it started. It's, that's kind of always been the story. You're in good company. These first Christians were a pretty unimpressive group of people, but they changed the world. They were like a dandelion that sprouted in the crack of the concrete that was the Roman Empire. They were small, easy to overlook, like a mustard seed, Jesus would say, unimpressive. But that seed grew, and it created greater and greater cracks in this empire until the emperor himself was kneeling before Jesus. How did that happen? Amazing preaching? Rome already had incredible orators and speakers and writers. Finely polished Christian TED Talks were not going to be what saved the world. Did, did they have superior worship leaders with this amazing light show and fog machines that just dazzled the senses and you're just like, wow, just blown away? You could just go down the road to the theater or the Colosseum and you could get all of the wow that your heart desired. Rome had already mastered the art of the spectacle. These humble Christians, there was no way they were going to be able to compete with wonder and amazement and just blowing people's minds. The first church didn't have an army at their disposal. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have political clout. But how many Christians depend on those things and freak out when they feel like they're losing their power in culture and in society? Those folks are sadly mistaken because those things don't change the world. We, we, we didn't need them at the beginning. We don't need them now to change the world. How did the first Christians turn the world upside down? Well, Roman society was built like a pyramid with the emperor at the top and slaves at the very bottom. Multiple layers were existing between all these different classes. You knew who was who based on how they were dressed, how they carried themselves, where they did and didn't spend their time. And changing your social, your social status was extremely difficult, if not impossible, if not illegal. You could be arrested or even executed if you tried to disrupt this social hierarchy. The whole thing was built on everything always being like this and never changing. Now, regardless of where you were in society, everybody had to eat, but even at mealtime, you had to respect where you were on the social ladder. You knew who mattered at mealtime because the important people would eat first. And if there was any food left, the slave gets it, if there's anything left. 
Now, imagine that you're a slave and you've been invited to this agape meal. It's one of these gatherings that have been put on by these followers of, of the way, these, these, these people who are centering their lives around this man in Palestine named Jesus of Nazareth. And as far as you knew, as far as the story went, Jesus had been crucified, so you're not really sure why people are making such a big deal out of this guy, but you're hungry, so you go to this agape meal. But you manage your expectations as you go because you know you're going to, if there's anybody there who's higher up on the ladder than you, you're going to have to serve them first. And you're going to have to wait until they're done eating before you eat. And you show up and there's an equestrian and you know because of how he's dressed. And so you get ready to attend to his needs like you always do. But he does something that you don't expect he acknowledges your presence. He greets you. He gives you a kiss of greeting. He takes you by the hand and he sits you down. And now it gets weirder because he takes off your sandals and then he starts to wash your feet. This is so weird. You don't say anything, but then he leads you to the table and then, okay, okay, now I know what to do. And you look for food to serve to him, but he seats you, and he begins to wait on you. He doesn't eat first. He's serving you, a slave, and you're stunned. You're holding back tears because you've never experienced anything like this. Nobody has ever served you, not once in your entire life. But this meal and the cross that's how Jesus is creating this new kind of society, this new kind of family. The emperor is at the top of the Roman pyramid, but this Jesus, this Lord, he makes his way to the bottom of the pyramid to serve anybody that he finds down there. And this is what unraveled the Roman Empire. This was the revolution that the world needed, and it happened without spilling one drop of blood. Why? Because the king of this kingdom had already spilled his own blood. No more was needed to be shed. He took care of everything. And Jesus did this so that he could get us off the pyramid where we push other people down so that we can move up in society. And he did this so that he could get us around a table where we serve each other, where we look after one another's needs. There's all these one another's in the scriptures that suddenly make so much sense about how we're supposed to treat one another. There's, even, there's moments that only make sense, things that, that we'll read about in the New Testament that only make sense because they gathered around a meal. Paul's really mad at this church in, in, in Corinth because he says, you guys, when you get together, you don't wait for everybody to arrive. And you just, like, you just pig out and you get drunk and then some other people show up and there's nothing left for them. And he's just like, guys, that's how everybody else does it. We're trying to do something different. That doesn't make any sense to you and I if we take communion in rows going up as, a, as part of a church service, but if we gather around a meal, then what Paul says makes perfect sense. Oh, of course. They're, they're, they're messing up the beautiful thing that Jesus had established. How terrible. When it comes to how we gather, is there something in you that's longing to gather like those first Christians gathered? Is there, is it, not just for the sense of authenticity, but this sense of like, man, I think the world needs that. I think I need that. I think I, I know some other people in my life who need that. If, if we did this, what, what would change about our Sunday morning gatherings? Like, should we always start with a meal? Should we maybe sometimes do, you know, nighttime and we do an epic dinner? 
and then we move into every other part of our, our gatherings? What, what would change about our midweek community groups? Like before we talk about any questions on a piece of paper, what would be different if we started off by just breaking bread together in our homes, sharing a meal, sharing our lives, catching up? What, what, would, change, what would change about the break, the break room at work? What if that wasn't just like, you know, a humdrum, ordinary space, but you said, no, God, I, wanna, I want you to work through my life to make this into sacred space. There are people who are lonely and disconnected, and I don't know what's going on in their life, but this little break room table here, would you be at work in my life to make this a holy place where people can be known and loved and accepted and experience something different? What would change about our home dining room tables and and you know maybe when we initially set up that space we thought about who was going to be around that table and what those times were going to be for but but what if we found regular opportunities to invite over our neighbors the friends of our kids and love them like jesus first loved us who who in your life would be so hungry for that who in your life has been excluded from all the other circles and you're going to create a circle around your table Jesus loved us enough to draw us into his circle. And now it's our turn. Who needs to be drawn into your circle? Who needs to experience love, the kind of love that Jesus showed to you? How has Jesus loved you? And then you now have everything you need to show love to somebody else because you experienced it. It's time to reclaim what Jesus can do around a table. Something so ordinary, something so common, but it can become so powerful. So, if you're longing for this, you're not the only one. As, as we've been talking uh, amongst ourselves for the past few weeks, um, and even before that, God's just been stirring this up in different ones of us. The question is, are we going to make room in our lives for this? Do, do we want to stop attending church and actually be the church? wherever we are, when we gather here and in our homes and at the break room. What, what does Jesus want to do around a table? 